you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray now as we look at these words from uh, your Holy Scriptures, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would reveal them to us. He would show us your truths. Lord, we want to hear from you this morning. So I pray, Lord, that my words would be your words and our thoughts would be your thoughts. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a very cruel child experiment that goes on that involves sitting a kid down and presenting them with a sweet. And they're told that if they can wait for so many minutes without taking that sweet, then they'll get two sweets. And sometimes the kids will take the sweet, and sometimes they will patiently wait and get the two sweets. And scientists and uh, people have looked into this and said, what does that say about people's personality? What does it say about those who grab the sweet there and then and take it and those that wait for the two sweets? And they say that those that grab early are the kind of risk takers, the entrepreneurs of this world, and those that uh, are prepared to wait are those that uh, perhaps a little bit more steady um, they can be relied on. They're thoughtful. And you know, in life, there's kind of often these conflicting philosophies about the way we should behave. Just look at some uh, well-known uh, uh, phrases or proverbs. Are you the kind of person that looks before you leap? Or one that holds on to the saying that he who hesitates is lost? Are you one that thinks that nothing ventured, nothing gained? Or do you think, better safe than sorry? Difficult, isn't it? What, what kind of people are we supposed to be? And do you know, for the early disciples, if we look back to the last chapter of Matthew, Jesus gave his disciples an instruction that said, go out into all the world and make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then just a few days later, we see Jesus giving instructions to the same people saying, wait, don't leave Jerusalem. 
well, hang on, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to go to the ends of the earth and make disciples of all nations, or am I supposed to wait here in Jerusalem? Are these contradictory instructions from Jesus, or are actually they complementary? This year, we're going to be working our way through at least the early chapters of Acts, and we're going to see the outworking of the instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples. And I hope that as a church, we'll take the messages on board and see what the examples of those early disciples have to say to us as a church about the way we should be and do church today. We'll be continuing this series, and actually Darren, when he comes uh, next week, will be carrying on um, this second half of Acts chapter 1. I just want to make it clear um, because I think there may be some uh, kind of misunderstanding. We tried to make it really, really clear in the, uh, um, the church meeting that when Darren's coming next week, he is coming to uh, preach with a peep, as it's so-called. Right? This is very much a preliminary step on the journey of exploring what God's will is for us. I don't want there to be any confusion that this is a formal preach with a view that is then going to result in a recommendation or otherwise um, uh, for him to be appointed, okay? This is a preach with a peep, the one step on the journey for us as a leadership to explore um, what God has in, in store for us, okay? So please don't uh, um, have overplay the expectations of next week. If you have any doubt about that, then come and have a conversation with the, uh, the leaders. But um, hopefully Darren is going to take us on that next uh, step of the journey through Acts. But by way of um, kind of introduction to Acts, <coughs> the author is probably Luke, right? He maybe gives himself away in verse 1 um, where he makes reference to this guy called Theophilus. And he refers to his former book, and actually, if you look at Luke, chapter 3, uh, he uh, refers to Theophilus in, uh, in Luke. Um, so, sorry, Luke, chapter 1, verse 3, he refers to uh, Theophilus. So it's probably the same author as the Gospel of Luke. And the book of Acts follows on almost like a kind of account, history, of what the disciples did after Jesus ascended into heaven. So it's almost as if the Gospels is an account of what Jesus began to do on earth. And in fact, those words are used. You know, this is the account of um, what Jesus began to do. Acts is about all that Jesus continued to do, not physically here on earth, but through his church and empowered by his Holy Spirit. What Jesus began, the church needs to continue. And actually, although it's called the Acts of the Apostles, actually that's a bit of a misnomer because the apostles, most of them, don't get much of a mention. <laughs> what it really is, is the Acts of the Holy Spirit as he works through the early church. The Gospels were an account of Jesus the man, perfect man, living, giving us an example 
the acts is how we should follow that example empowered by his Holy Spirit. It's far more than a history book. J.B. Phillips wrote in his book, The Young Church in Action, in describing Acts, he says, Surely this is the church as it was meant to be. It's vigorous and flexible. For these are the days before it ever became fat and short of breath through prosperity or muscle-bound by over-organization. These men did not make acts of faith. They believed. They did not say their prayers. They prayed. They did not hold conferences or psychosomatic medical medicine. Sorry, on conferences on psychosomatic medicine. They simply healed the sick. By modern standards, they may have been naive. But perhaps because of their very simplicity, perhaps because of their readiness simply to believe, to obey, to give, to suffer, and if necessary to die, the Spirit of God found that he could work in them and through them. And so they turned the world upside down. And as we study this book, I hope we will see that this is what the church needs to learn. You see, the Spirit is the same. The mission is the same. The opposition is fundamentally the same. We can learn a lot from how the early church behaved. How to live in what is predominantly a pagan culture. How to be bold, how to speak out, and how to show love in our world. And it's interesting that right at the start of this book, we see what happened right at the end of Jesus' ministry on earth. He had 40 days between the empty tomb and uh, um, his ascension into uh, to heaven. 40 days to share with his disciples. 40 days to give them some last instructions. These 40 days were a pretty significant time for the disciples. You see, up to now, they had very much had their L plates on, as it were. And honestly, they hadn't really made a very good job of much of it, had they? They kept arguing who was going to be the greatest. They swore blind that they would never, ever, ever leave Jesus or deny him. And what happened? When confronted, when put in their first difficult position, they denied. They swore blind that they did not know this man. One of those 12 that was close to him even betrayed him, sold him for 30 pieces of silver. These were the disciples, the apostles, that Jesus was pinning his hope on to carry on his work. And they hadn't done a very good job up to that point. When the going got tough, they scarpered. And here was Jesus about to hand over the baton of work to them. What would you have said if you'd been in that position to encourage these disciples, to instruct them? Would it be kind of like a football team talk? You know, the half-time talk where you're already 5-0 down and... uh, What on earth do you say to these people to turn them around from the position that they've been in? 
What was it that Jesus said? His words that he said during these 40 days were critically important. And what was it that Jesus did in those 40 days? We read that, didn't we, in Acts. First of all, he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He went round and made it really, really clear, unambiguously clear, that he was not dead, but he was alive. For me, this is one of the non-negotiables, the most important things in the whole of our Christian belief. Jesus thought it was so because he made absolutely clear that there was no doubt. The fact that Jesus died and rose again is the fundamental difference between Christianity and any other world religion. It's the thing that completely sets us apart and is the thing that we have to cling on to. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then all our hope is gone. If Jesus did not defeat death, then he never defeated sin. And all our hope is gone. But praise God. In those 40 days, he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. What else did he do? Look in Acts 1. He talked to them about the kingdom. Jesus said the kingdom, God's outworking of the kingdom here on earth, is really important. It was one of the things that Jesus had to cover in those 40 days before he went. And so for us, bringing about the kingdom of God here in this place is really important. That's what the church has to do. He gave them many instructions through the Holy Spirit. A little bit more about that later on. What else did he do? He restored fallen Peter. Peter, who denied him, Jesus restored him. He encouraged him. Jesus met and confronted Mary in her sorrow. He welcomed doubting Thomas. He instructed the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. When the disciples were discouraged out fishing, he met them, met with them and ate with them. He cooked breakfast for them. He served them. What a wonderful image of what we as a church need to be in looking after those who are discouraged, those who are weeping, those who feel they're a failure, those who doubt, those who are discouraged, those who need service. Jesus, during that 40 days, gave the perfect example of what we as a church need to be. But it wasn't just about instruction. It wasn't just about that pep talk that, come on, lads, you can do this. Jesus actually gave them instructions about where they were to get their power from. He wasn't going to leave them on their own. And he talked about this gift that the Father was going to promise them, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Previously, you've been baptized by water, but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I have to say, this is a subject of some contention. Some would say that baptism in the Holy Spirit is, is the same as your experience at conversion. Some would say that it was a one-off experience for the early church at that time, the initial outpouring of the Spirit. Some would say it's something that actually we need to actively experience and, and seek today. Which is it? Do you know what? It must break God's heart that there's so much conflict and uh, division over, over this. The gift that he wants to give us. And yet people argue the toss about which it is. And I think in all honesty, if we're going to work out what actually is the truth, we have to look honestly at the scriptures and equate that with our experience. And if I do that for the experience that I have in my life, then I say actually there's elements of all three in that. Let me explain my thinking. So first of all, the Holy Spirit and his role at the point of conversion. Some would argue that you're not a proper Christian unless you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. For the avoidance of doubt, I want to say absolutely that when you honestly commit your life to God, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? There are countless scriptures that tell you, so be under no doubt at all Paul in Corinthians says, we're all baptized by one spirit into the body. We're all, you know, kind of that covers everybody, doesn't it? But, uh, um, when we make that decision. Romans, Paul again, saying, if anybody does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Right? So you can't call yourself a Christian unless you agree that actually you've got the Holy Spirit in you. Those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Jesus himself said, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the Spirit. Second Corinthians, he put his Spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So be under no doubt that if you're a Christian, if you've honestly made that prayer of repentance and confession, then God's Spirit is in you. There's no such thing as second-grade Christians. We're all one in him. Praise the Lord for that. But what about the Holy Spirit and the first disciples? Was it a different experience then? Well, were the disciples Christians? Do you know what? Yeah, I think. <laughs> Absolutely, we can say they believed in Jesus and they were children of God. Jesus himself said that you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. When they said um, Jesus was going to wash their feet, and uh, Peter you know, jumps in again with both feet, said, well, not just my feet, but the whole of me. And he says, actually, you don't need it, Peter. You're already washed clean. You just need your feet. Jesus knew that these were disciples who had already made that commitment. But the Holy Spirit hadn't been released in all his power at that time. So whilst they were Christians and whilst they would have had the Spirit working in them, 
They were instructed by Jesus to wait, stay in the city, until they'd been clothed with power from on high. So it was a little bit different for the early disciples. Because when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. This was the first real outpouring of the Holy Spirit in power. So it was kind of different, but it's the same Spirit. So, what about us? What does it mean for us now to be filled with the Holy Spirit? So let's move on. After that initial Pentecost, we see consistently that when the disciples are confronted with uh, opposition, when they have to speak up, Acts tells us that they were able to speak out, they were able to answer the challenges because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And whenever they were appointing leaders they always looked for people who were filled with the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean to be filled? What's kind of the difference? Well, let me make a a bit of an analogy here. I had a friend who had an old classic car, and uh, um, we were away one weekend, and he was trying to get his car started after the weekend. And try as he might... Every time he turned the key, the starter motor just spun, 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 spun. The engine just wouldn't catch. And uh, being a kind of old classic car, we had all the things kind of uh, taken apart to try and find out what on earth was going on. Was there fuel? Was the battery okay? Were the spark plugs uh, firing? Then all of a sudden, to his immense embarrassment, he realized that he hadn't flicked the immobilizer switch. As soon as he flicked that switch, he turned the key and boom, the car fired up. And for me, that's a bit like our lives as Christians. We might have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We might have the fuel, the battery power, the spark plugs. But unless we have that immobilizer switch disabled that allows the Spirit to move in all its power then actually we don't see the outworking of that and we're kind of spinning, as it were, on the starter motor. So what is it that allows, in that, using that kind of analogy, the switch to be flicked? Those of you who've been coming along on Sunday evenings um, and listening to the J. John um, DVDs uh, will have heard last week what I think is a wonderful analogy that J. John uses in trying to answer the question, is Jesus Lord of your life? And the analogy he uses is one of a passenger in a car. And he says, is your journey with Jesus like you kind of put him in the boot and you drive to church on Sundays and you get him out of the boot and it's all kind of great and uh, you have a great time at church and then you put him back in the boot and then you go home and forget all about him. Is that your relationship with Jesus? Or is he 
somebody that you have in the back seat of the car. He's a, a passenger, a companion, but do you know what? Not really very involved. Yeah, he's visible, but um, you know, not, uh, not, not really a part of your life. Or is he perhaps somebody that you have in the front seat next to you? You keep him close. You talk to him. He's a, he's a friend, a companion on your journey. Or is he somebody that's in the driving seat? You see, I think the difference between having the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit is how much we're prepared to let him have his way. How much are we as individuals prepared to let the Holy Spirit lead us, guide us, do things that uh, maybe we wouldn't do ourselves? Or is it like we have the Holy Spirit maybe in the driving seat, but we're just too keen to go out and grab the wheel when we don't think we're going in the direction we want? Or we shout out, why on earth are you going left here? We need to be going straight on or we need to be going the other way. See, Jesus said to his disciples, wait for the gift. Wait for the Holy Spirit because he's going to be the one that empowers you. He's going to be the one that allows you to uh, uh, be effective for me. Jesus has instructed his church to go and make disciples of all nations, go to the ends of the earth. How on earth were they going to do that without being empowered? And the reason I think why Jesus used the words baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's the same word we use as baptism in uh, total immersion in water. What, What does that signify? It signifies that we're dying to ourselves. It signifies that we're burying our past. It signifies that we're raised with him. And so it is with baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're signifying that actually we're no longer ours. We're his. We want to be filled, completely immersed. That's what the the word baptisma means. Completely immersed, filled. Because only then will he truly be in the driving seat of our lives. See, we live in a quite a dangerous world, don't we? And Jesus didn't want to uh, send us out unprepared. I mean, you wouldn't jump out of an aeroplane without a parachute, would you? Unless you were stupid like this guy. It's kind of terminal. <laughs> so why would Jesus let us go out into the world without the power of the Holy Spirit? Inside us. Jesus in Matthew said, I'm sending you out like sheep amongst wolves. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for I will not be, uh, it will not be you that is speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. God is giving us in his Holy Spirit everything that we need to answer those that would challenge us. 
Jesus knew the importance of being properly equipped, and that's why he told his disciples to wait. Don't just rush off. Wait. So what did Jesus promise his disciples? Two things. In Matthew, he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. All authority. What a wonderful thing for us to be able to say that we have the authority of God himself. But he also said, in these verses we read, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then you'll be my witnesses. Authority and power. You see, to use an analogy of a wrestling match, there's two guys here. One has authority, and one has power. The referee has the authority to stop a fight, to tell people, um, what they should and shouldn't do, and he has the authority to say who has won the wrestling bout. That big guy there on the left, there's no doubt about it, he has the power, but no authority. And authority without power could be a dangerous thing. You know, that guy on the left could beat up the referee if he didn't recognize his authority. No doubt about it. Power without authority is a dangerous thing. As we've seen in the recent tragic events in Paris, these guys acting completely without authority, but with power to kill and maim. But when we have power and authority from God himself, there is none that can stand against us. And that, for me, is why this whole 40 days experience about Jesus' instruction on the gift that God was going to pour out in his Holy Spirit to bolster that authority that the disciples already had. Here was a church that, although just a few days previously had been running away, petrified, scared, now they were a church equipped and empowered to really do the mission that God had set for them. So I wonder, the one sweet or the two sweets I talked about before, in your mind, have you taken that one sweet, gobbled it up now? Or were you waiting for that better gift? As a church, I want us to be really clear that what I'm not saying today is that we have to sit back and wait. Wait for some special outpouring of the Spirit. We already have the Spirit. I've told you that. If we've already given our hearts to Jesus, we're filled with his Holy Spirit. It's not about waiting for that. It's a much more active waiting. It's waiting to hear where the Spirit is leading us. It's that active waiting that doesn't grab the steering wheel of our lives when we think things are not going according to plan. It's that kind of active waiting that doesn't stamp on the accelerator when we think things should be going faster than we'd like. 
it's not that uh, kind of waiting that would stamp on the brakes when we think things are getting out of control. It's the kind of active waiting that is listening to God's Holy Spirit, what he's saying to us, and saying, you know best. I'm going to put my trust in you. I'm going to be subservient to your power and authority. You know, we can do all kinds of things in our own strength. And do you know what? Often they will work out, you know, because God's given us brains. <laughs> He's given us skills. And, you know, sometimes taking that first sweet straight away, things can work. But the far better gift, the far greater plan that God has demands us to wait on his Holy Spirit. To wait for that guidance. To wait for that instruction. Do you know, Jesus didn't launch into his ministry. It was 30 years before he felt he was ready to go out, teach his disciples, and reveal who he was. Every time Jesus needed to do stuff, he sought God's will. He spent time in prayer. He shut himself away. He went out into the wilderness for 40 days. Hmm, that number 40 is quite important, isn't it? Before he started his ministry, he himself... Even the Son of God needed to be baptized. And what did we see happen at that baptism? The Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. Even Jesus, the Son of God, needed the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So how can we as a church say, actually, we know best? We don't need to wait for that. We don't need to wait, and I know we don't. But I want to take as our motto text for this year, as we look at how God's going to unfold his plans for us, I want to take the text, wait for the gift my father has promised. Because I believe that God has got some wonderful things in store for us as a church. We've seen how his hand has been upon so many things that we've done, how he's equipped and enabled we must wait on him. We must wait to hear his voice. And there will probably be things going on over the next couple of weeks that might say to us, oh, this would be great if this could happen. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if we could have this person join us? And it might be. Praise the Lord, it might be. But let's listen to his voice, the voice of the Holy Spirit. Let's wait for the gift that our Father promised